Read this with me as I read it. It'll be up on the screen. And I might need a Kleenex. Um, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Thank you, Wendy. And he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and the men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Who's the he? Jesus. Doesn't that sound like it comes from the book of Revelation, the book that we've been studying for the last four weeks? And yet, those are the words of Daniel praising God 600 years before Christ came the first time. Today we're going to look at the second of the two books we're going to be going back and forth through in this series that we're calling Already Finished But Not Yet Done. And we are in week five of this series. And what we've seen in this series is that there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God and there is the kingdom of man. And those kingdoms are in conflict. Because what we want and what God desires are often in conflict. By way of review, over the last couple weeks, I want to take a look at briefly Christ's message to his church. Because we will see the problem in Daniel's time was no different than the problem in the time of the church today that we live in. Jesus is very concerned about the health of his church. Because his bride is what he's coming back for. He has always, frankly, cared more about his people than he's cared about the rest of the world. That's, that's his story. So in Ephesus, we saw that they were the loveless church, and the warning that Christ gave was, therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm going to come to you and remove your lampstand out of its place. But the reward for them would be, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then we saw Smyrna, the persecuted church. And his warning to them was, do not fear what you are about to suffer. And his reward was, because if you overcome, you will not be hurt by the second death. That's the final judgment. In Pergamum, the compromising church, we see him warn them, repent or else I'm going to come to you quickly and I will make war against you with the sword of my mouth. Remember, he's not talking about those, those people out there. He's talking about the people in the church. And then he says, but if you overcome, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Thyatira was the corrupt church, and he warns them, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and great tribulation. And we see that happening in the church, especially in the West, in the States, and in Europe. But his reward is he who overcomes, that faithful remnant, he who keeps my deeds until the end, he will give, I will give authority over the nations." Sardis was the dead church, and he warns them to wake up, or I will come like a thief, and I will not, and you will not know the hour I will come to you. But he who overcomes, he will clothe with white garments and, and will not erase his name from the book of life, and he will confess his name before his father and before his angels. 
Philadelphia was the faithful church, and he told them to hold fast to what they had so that no one would take their crown, because if they overcome, he will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. And finally, Laodicea was the lukewarm church, maybe the one that we tend to see around us more today. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. And he who overcomes, he will grant to sit down with me on my throne. These describe the state of his church, not then, but now, throughout the church age. They have not, nothing has changed. The church is what Jesus is doing now on the earth. What Brian shared is part of the gospel moment. That we are the hands and feet of Jesus. He is, when people say, what, is, what in the world is God doing? The answer is the bride of Christ. That's the answer. But we can often wonder when we look around, like, Lord, what in the world are you doing? Have you lost control? How do you expect us to live in this world that is so anti-God, as Jeff shared, in no God we trust, in Texas of all places, uh, they were ready to secede from the union because we were all too liberal. And yet, even God's people, people that have professed faith in Christ, are denying his very existence. Daniel is going to help us answer the question, how now should we live? Because 600 years before Christ came, he was living in a world that was far worse than we have it. Probably a lot closer to what they are experiencing in China. And like Revelation is a wake-up call to the church, Daniel, the book of Daniel, was a wake-up call to God's people. And they didn't necessarily heed it. So today's message is called The Reward of Commitment. The Reward of Commitment. And I'm going to ask a question. It's not today's question yet, but here's a question I have for you. How do you know what you're living for? So don't, that's not the question of the day, but I just want to ask, like, how do you know? How, do, how does Doug know what he's living for? God hit me with this a couple weeks ago. I would say, what are you known for? What are you known for? What does your family know you for? What does your spouse know you for? What does your Facebook feed know you for? What does your Twitter account know you for? What is your fill-in-the-blank, what are you known for? That is probably what you're living for. And I felt very convicted about that. A little background about where Daniel finds himself. I don't spend a lot of time introducing books because you all have these super study Bibles and the internet and you can go look up all the background. But the bottom line is Daniel lived about 600 years before Christ was born and his people were under great persecution. What had happened is 100 years before Daniel, when Hezekiah was king of Judah, the Assyrian Empire, which we know of, think of as Iran now, they were attacking Israel. And, Isaiah, and, and unfortunately, Hezekiah, who was a good king, made a bad choice. And he invited the rulers of Babylon, which was sort of this up-and-coming area, which we now think of as Iraq. Iran is up north and Iraq is here. He invites some of their high people to come and tour the temple. And Isaiah, the, the, the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament, comes to Hezekiah and says, what would you do? And he says, well, I just showed these people around. And Isaiah says to him, here's the deal. Your descendants are going to be taken away by the kingdom of Babylon, and they will rule in his court. 
And over a hundred years later, that came true. Because God raised up Babylon to punish the Assyrians, is what God's word says. And Nebuchadnezzar, who we're going to see as the king of Babylon, he starts to attack Judah, Israel. And over three successive periods, over about 30 years of time, he comes and takes away some of God's people back to Babylon until finally he's just fed up with their obstinance towards him and he destroys the entire city. They literally ground the temple down to nothing because they were so angry with God's people. So that is the world that Daniel will find himself in when he is about 15 years old. I say all that to say this, to ask today's question. Is it your circumstances, in view of where Daniel and his friends are going to find themselves as 15-year-olds, in view of your circumstances, or is it what you're going through or your Savior that sets your spiritual temperature? Because Daniel and his friends had every reason in the world to deny the Lord. And they didn't. And that's what we're going to see. I only have two points today. One is Daniel's resolve, and the second is God's reward. So let's take a look at the first one, Daniel's resolve. Open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel. It's in your Old Testament. It's uh, probably the easiest way to find it is to start working backwards from your New Testament. If you get to the big book of Ezekiel, you've gone too far. So it's right after Ezekiel. It's Daniel. So it goes Jeremiah. There's a little book called Lamentations. And then there's a, a big book called Ezekiel, and it's Daniel. And we're going to start in Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to look at Daniel's resolve. In the third year of, king, of the reign of King... Uh, I'm sorry, let me start over. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So this is the first time the Babylonians are going to come and attack Jerusalem. It's in 605 B.C. And it says... The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Guys, first thing I want to point out is the Lord gave them over. Nebuchadnezzar never took anything. I mean, he did. He came into the temple. He took a lot of the stuff that they were using to worship our God, and they took it back to worship their false gods, but he didn't take it. God gave it. That's what it says at the beginning of verse 2. God gave it to them. That's important for us to remember. One of the things we're going to see throughout Daniel and throughout Revelation is God is in control. He is still on his throne. He never all of, he is in control of all the world governments that have ever existed, including ours. But here's what God is saying to his people. You want to live like the world? I'm going to take you there. Because what had happened is God's people, during that time after Hezekiah died, Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, was a foul, foul human being. He was a king of God's people sacrificing children in, in idol worship. And God's people had become so lukewarm. They'd become so like the world. They'd been consumed in worldliness. Even their worship of him was worldly worship. And he's like, you know what? You want to worship that way? Then I'm going to take you there. I'm going to let you do it. Makes me wonder a little bit about today. Let's keep going. Verses 3 through 7. We're introduced to Daniel and his friends. It says, Then the king ordered Asphron... Um, I'm sorry. 
Let me start over. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the nobles. Youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed them that they should be educated three years. Remember that, three years. That's a long time if you're a 15-year-old. At the end of which you were to, they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the commander of the officials assigned them new names to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, the Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. The whole point of him assigning names is to erase God from their lives. They have taken these young men, not just these four, perhaps hundreds, maybe thousands, in this deportation, and one of the first things they do is they want to erase any evidence, anything that's left of this remnant that might still believe in this God of theirs. He wants to erase that. So what their names once meant, Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means God is gracious. Mishael means who is like God. And Azariah means God helps. All of their new names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are all References to Babylonian gods. He is trying to redefine their faith. Sound familiar? Is the world trying to redefine our faith? Guys, are people that are professing faith in Christ trying to redefine? I mean, the, the redefinition of marriage is a redefining of faith. It is changing the name. That's what they're trying to do to these young men now. It brings to mind Romans, our invocation passage. Guys, Romans 1, or Romans 12, after Paul writes out the gospel in chapters 1 through 11, he says, Therefore, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then he immediately follows it up with, Don't be conformed to the world. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Don't be conformed to the world, Doug. Don't be conformed to the world, David but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But here's the thing. I can quickly go to the second part of that. Don't be conformed to this world. Verse 2, with, and, not, and not really bathe myself in verse 1. Verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, is only possible if I present my body a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is my spiritual service of worship. That's the only way that works. We're going to see that what made these four young men exceptional wasn't because they were just lock-jawed, like, strong men. It was because they had exceptional faith. And they wanted to present their bodies a living sacrifice. Look at verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Guys, this is just the beginning for these four young men. I'm going to take the time, even though I maybe don't have it, I don't care, because I, the interconnectedness of Scripture is so amazing. Keep your finger in Daniel, turn to the left, past that big book of, of Ezekiel, 
One more, well, two, well, then you're going to pass a little book called Lamentations. Go to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter, if I ask right now, what does Jeremiah 29, 11 say? Who here knows? What does it say? Right. For I know that I hear it all, several places. For it's, it's, it's probably, if it's not the most well-known passage in the Old Testament, it is certainly the most well-known passage in the little red book of Jeremiah. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope in a future, depending on what your translation you're reading from. But what is the context of that? Here's the context. Jeremiah is a prophet in Jerusalem at the same time that Daniel is, the, is a boy in Babylon. And he is watching these Babylonians come in over 30 years and destroying the city he loves. Now, in that context, let's look at Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 1. Now, these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders and exiles, the priests and the prophets, all of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Do you get it? He's saying this letter was written by Jeremiah to be sent to them to encourage them. So what does he say? I'm going to jump down. He says, in verse 4, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. He's saying, here's your word of encouragement, people. You're, you are, you have been dragged away from your families. You've been taken from your homes. You are living in the heart of enemy territory, in the greatest superpower of the world at the time, here's what he tells them to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give them to your daughters, to husbands, and that they might bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not, and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city which I have sent you into exile. Guys, whoa. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying live your lives. Yes, I know it's hard. It's my plan for you. It's hard. I know the plans I have for you isn't I, because, that you're going to drive around in a BMW and live in a nice house and sit by your pool every day. I know the plans I have for you. My plan for you is to be there. So while you're there, live for me. And then, oh, by the way, this is the Seek the welfare of the city. Do you hear what he's saying? Pray for these pathetic heathen Babylonians. Guys, as we're driving around, our hearts should be, and we're walking in the mall, which I don't ever do anymore because I just can't. But if, wherever you are, instead of looking around going, oh, how can those people be like that? Train your brain to say, of course they're like that. They don't know the Lord. And what he's telling us to do is to pray for the welfare of the city. We are hopeful exiles, and we're here to share that hope. But look at verse 10. He says, Then 70 years will be completed in Babylon, and I will visit you and fulfill my word to you to bring you back to this place. And that's exactly what happens. In 586 is, the la is when they destroyed the temple, crushed it down to nothing. In 516, Zerubbabel leads the people back. What is the date? For, what are the, how many years are there between 586 and 516? 70. God calls his shot here. When other people were saying, well, it's only going to be a couple years, so just write it out, hunker down. Jeremiah's like, no, God's telling you, you're in this for the long haul. So when he says, 
verse 11, the one we all want to cling to. And I mean, I have it underlined, highlighted, and circled in my Bible because I love it so much. But here's the deal. Guys, th- seriously, the, the deal is, this is while you're in captivity, while you're just in exile in a land that hates you, I know the plan I have for you. It's a plan to prosper you and not to harm you. How, how do they read that and go, this feels like harm to me? Here's the answer. Because he's going to bring them back 70 years later. They're going to rebuild the temple. And 400 years later, Jesus Christ is coming. That's the plan he had for them. Just like for us now in the church age. The plan he has for us is to, someday he's coming back, and when he does, it's going to be glorious. And until then, we are to not just hunker down, but we're to seek the welfare of the city. Back to Daniel. So we go back to Daniel. Sorry to take that little caveat there. I don't often do that when I've got a lot of scripture, but I think it's worth the time to understand what we're dealing with here. Daniel's, Daniel verse 1, verses 8 and 9 are really where this whole chapter and the whole book swings. Daniel 8 starts with, Daniel 1, 8 starts with, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself, and God granted Daniel favor. Do you see the swing? God gave Daniel favor. Daniel's did his part, and God gave him favor. Daniel didn't just go, you know what, I'm going to let go and let God. I'm just going to sit back and do I'm just going to pray about that. No, 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 no. He prayed a lot. He was known as a man of prayer, but he didn't just pray. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and everything else will be added unto me. Daniel and his friends are living proof. So the question we're asking today is, is it your circumstances or your Savior that sets your spiritual temperature? We've seen Daniel's resolve. Now let's look at God's reward. God's reward. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion. And the commander of the official said, I'm afraid of the Lord my king, Nebuchadnezzar, who appointed you food and drink. So here's what he's saying to Daniel and his friends. He's saying, wait a minute, I was given a job. My job is to get you guys healthy and get you smart. And if and if you don't do what I, my plan is, which I've seen work a hundred times here, Daniel, I'm afraid my king, who's a little, got some anger management issues we're going to see next, next week, is going to come in here and lop off my head. So pick it up in verse 12. It says, but please, so here's what Daniel says, please test me. Test your servants for 10 days. That's, he's like, all I'm asking, give me 10 days. Give me 10 days for me and my three friends. Now, now here's a question. Where's the rest of the people? When Daniel says this, why does this only apply to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Where is everybody else? Here's where everybody else is. It's the same place that 80% of our kids are going after they leave high school. They have been consumed. They just bought in hook, line, and sinker. I'll just leave that there for now. So he gives them 10 days. And in verse 13, it says, Then our appearance will be observed. And in the presence of the appearance of youth who are eating the king's food, so you're going to compare us and deal with your servant according to what you see. So he listened to them. He's like, okay, I'll give you 10 days. 
And he tested them for 10 days. In verse 15, in the 10 days, their appearance seemed better than, than, than the fatter, better and fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were drinking and kept giving them vegetables. So they, they, they were all in now, man. Can you imagine? As for the four youths, get this, third time God's, God gave. God gave Israel over to Babylon. God gave Daniel favor. God gave them knowledge and intelligence. These are supernatural spiritual gifts. This is part of their reward for their faithfulness. This is not, we'll see at the end of the chapter here. In fact, let's just, we'll keep reading. He says, at the end of the days, not the 10 days, what are the days? At the end of the days, in verse, 19, in verse 18, what are the days? Three years. They were eating vegetables and drinking water for three years. And the whole time God is giving them wisdom and knowledge and intelligence. And Daniel's able to discern all kinds of dreams and visions. And we're going to see those gifts played out in the coming weeks. It says the king talked with them and out. So they finally get to come to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them and out of, out of all of them, no one was found like Daniel Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's presence. And for every matter, I'm in verse 20, and every matter of wisdom and understanding which are about the king, which about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were with them. And Daniel continued unto the first year of Cyrus the king, which, oh, by the way, is like 80 years later. This book spans about 70 years, and it's not written chronologically. Guys, do you see what happened? Ten times better. They're faithful. Three years, they, 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 they follow God's will. And they are now ten times better than everybody else. How is that possible? Because that's God's reward. Right? God's reward is him. Guys, get this. What were these three? They were just human beings. 15, 16-year-old boys. Everyone else is eating filet mignon. They're having veggie burgers. What are they doing? Like, you don't think for a moment, just as human beings, they weren't just like, man, it sure smells better than we got. Like, seriously. Like, like, you know, it's like driving by a Burger King where they pump out that, this, I don't think it's even real. I think it's just like this. I'm like, man. Anyway. But it makes you hungry. Makes you want to go in there and eat. Right? This is what's, and they're, and they're staying, they're fasting. Okay, for three years, they're fasting. Fasting is just turning your mind's attention and heart's affection on him in worship, depriving your flesh of something it wants so that you can turn your attention to God. And for three years, that's what they did. And he rewarded them with his presence. Guys, it's not about, our, it's not about where we are or what we're doing it's about whose we are. It's about the commitment we've made to him. That's what we're supposed to be living for. They, the, these, three, these four young men are known for standing up. They're known for, for, for like being righteous. Guys, they were just living ready. That's all that they, they were living their lives then, ready for God to work. And we'll see that throughout the rest of this book. We wring our hands all the time about what's going to happen to our church, not just Cornerstone, but what's going to happen to the church, what's going to happen to God's people in a country that is racing to hell. And I understand that feeling. Having three daughters, I get that feeling of anxiousness. 
But guys, that's not what God has told us to do. They, they were where they were because God's people had gotten lukewarm. The reason they were in this pitch black, dark, like spiritually dark place is because God's people had stopped being the light that he's called them to be. So here are these four young men that shine pretty brightly in all of that darkness. The question is, where are they now? Where are the churches that are going to stand up and say, I'm going to just hold to Scripture like my life depends on it? Because it does. I'm going to, I'm going to continue to define marriage the way God defines marriage. I'm going to continue to define gender the way God defines gender. I'm going to continue to, to, to have my basis of truth be this book, not by what is culturally acceptable. Where are those churches? Because They're out there. We're not the only one by, by any stretch. Praise God there are good gospel-preaching churches in the Valley of the Sun. We pray for them regularly here. But they're getting fewer and fewer all the time. We are a people that want to have our ears tickled. Guys, God was saying to them then and to us now, wake up. He was saying to, he was, he was saying to his people, and this is why he takes them to Babylon in the first place, guys, you want to live like the world? Okay, I'll take you there. I'll let you go. Satan loves all false religion. Satan loves all false religion, but his favorite is nominal Christianity. Nominal Christianity just means the person who professes faith in Christ and you ask him, so how, tell me about your time in the Word. I don't, I don't ever read my Bible. How, do I go to church? Maybe once a month. I'm not talking about the person that never goes. I'm talking about the person that says, yeah, I attend regularly. What is, what's that mean for you regularly? Oh, about once a month. Satan loves that person. You know why? Because that person doesn't figure they need, they're in. Right? So you go to them and you say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. They're like, oh, I got him already. He is about the business of turning up the presence of nominal Christianity. Guys, these four stand out, not because they stood up and locked their jaw and said, we're not bowing down. They stood out because they were steadfast for God. That's why they stood out. They started with God. Guys, what if... What if we just prayed and fasted? What if, as a people, we just read and responded to his word every day so we could see his will for our lives and the life of our church? What if we just served and loved people? Right? That, that's, what, that's what they were doing. Guys, do, do you see how even, even in Daniel's response... To the, um, to the overseer, he doesn't go to him and say, I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. I'm going to start a petition and I'm going to boycott. No. He says, hey, can we just talk for a minute? Just give me 10 days. Just give me 10 days and, and let me show you what my God can do. And when you see what my God can do, you're going to be fine with the plan. Like That's the heart we need to have. What if we just worshiped? Right? Just as a people, what if we just worshipped? Instead, it got so caught up in all of these other things that we feel like we have to be involved in because our world is going to hell. The thing that made Daniel Daniel is he, he functioned in that world without ever being consumed in that world. That's hard. That's where worship is. 
Okay, sin starts where worship stops. When, when we are not worshiping, we tend to sin. And when we sin, we surely aren't worshiping. So what if we just worship? I'm going to ask the music team to come up and they're going to lead us in a song like they do a song of response. And I'm going to ask the question one more time. What is it your circumstances or your Savior that sets your spiritual temperature? Which is it? Are there areas of your life that you have made excuse for compromising? There are in mine. Guys, the, the, the message of the seven churches that we started with, that's what Jesus is saying to his church. Guys, there are just too many areas of your life where you're compromising and justifying it. Are, is that where we're at? Is that where we're at as a people? What are things that you need to say no to so you can say yes to him? One of the first verses I ever memorized as a new believer in the early 90s was First Chronicles, I'm sorry, Second Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the whole earth that he might strongly support those whose hearts are perfect towards him.